That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That, that which we have seen, and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Father, bless your understanding, the reading, the exposition, and the application of your infallible and error word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many months did we go through the book of Ezekiel? Several. Uh, I, I'm tempted to now for some, something completely different. <laughs> but it's not. It's not any different. It, this is the infallible, inerrant Word of God that applies to our life. We have the perspective in 1 John of more revelation, a more complete view. We know that John and the other apostles soak themselves in the Hebrew scriptures and especially the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the ESV version of the day, the Septuagint, the common language Bible of the day because most of the quotations in the New Testament are from that version of the Bible. So, in pivoting from uh, Ezekiel, which for me was a challenge, but also at the same time a deeply uh, powerful, uh, had a deeply powerful impact on, on my uh, life as a, a minister, I will, will forever be in the debt of Captain, the late Captain Lee House for goading me on to <laughs> preach through Ezekiel. We miss him. I know why he wanted me to do it, and, and, and again, I hope it has been as profitable for you all as it has been for me and for Jay, and for uh, um, just the opportunity to do that. But in pivoting from Ezekiel, we come to one who was 
one uh, who writes letters who was very close to the Lord Jesus. And that's what these first four verses of 1 John tell us about John, the author of this epistle. John who writes 1 John is the same John who writes the Gospel of John. And in uh, John's Gospel, I think it's the 22nd chapter, he describes his relationship with the Lord Jesus, that he is the one, uh, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that almost sounds like a brag. And I guess if I was the, the best friend of the Lord Jesus on, in his, uh, his uh, life and ministry, that I would be tempted to brag about that too. But the truth, the truth is, if you sang with Gus, though, as I heard you, sing, Jesus, what a friend of sinners, you are his friend too. You are that disciple whom Jesus loves. Friendship is, is one of the most important virtues of the Christian lives. Um, we, we need friends to encourage us in the Christian life. That's what the gathering of the Church of Jesus is all about. Uh, the most powerful influence on our young people in this day is, is their peers, are their friends. And I tell parents, and, and based on my own failed parenting, uh, how important it is to be careful about the, your children's friends, how vital good friends are to our spiritual growth. I always find it amusing when I go up to, with my wife uh, on occasion to the Crystal Bridges Museum, that incredible uh, place of American art, and, and to note that the most expensive American uh, painting ever rests in that museum, and it is, um, it is, it is uh, in, entitled Kindred Spirits, and it's a uh, painting by Tom, Thomas Cole, right? Uh, or did he? No, Durant. Yeah. Well, yeah. See, my wife artist here is keeping me straight. But of two people who are, are kindred spirits and looking at nature, and that's the way it's interpreted. But if you really dig down in the story, their friendship was based on their mutual faith in Jesus Christ. If you look at the rest of the paintings in there uh, by those artists, represented in that one uh, multi-million dollar uh, painting, you'll note this overt Christian symbolism. Those were dear believers. And that one picture in its uh, essence captures the importance of, of spiritual friendship and enjoying, uh, enjoying God's creation. <coughs> This disciple whom Jesus loved was used by him to write his gospel, named by him, named, named after him, John. And then he tells us the purpose of that gospel was these things I've written to you in order that you might believe in him. And in believing in him, have eternal life. 
this passage is also about that kinship between Christ and his people, and it's about our fellowship. And, and this morning, along with the preaching of the word, we have table fellowship together. And when we come to this, uh, and, th and that word fellowship that's translated the ESV could also be translated communion. We have intimate communion and fellowship with God through Christ's <coughs> sacrifice, and we also declare it with one another. Those gathered here, those gathered in other Bible-believing churches around our, our state and around our cities, around our nation and throughout the world. And not only those, our fellowship with those in heaven as well. It's the communion of the saints. And that's what John is declaring. First of all, the word of life in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The requirement for an apostle was for them to have seen and been with the Lord Jesus personally. There were 12 disciples. One of them betrayed Jesus. He was replaced in the book of Acts. The 12 uh, was a, a significant number. They replaced him with Matthias through the congregation as one who had been with Jesus in the outer circle. Many Bible scholars believe he was actually replaced by the apostle Paul who saw him later personally as he's going to Damascus to persecute the church as a member of the Pharisees to, to stamp out what he thought was a cult. This, this, is, this is John's um, authority to write. He says, I, I, we, we heard him. We, we saw him with our own eyes. We we've looked upon him. We've touched him with our hands concerning the word of life and the word used here is logos the same word that he used to begin his gospel john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and everything that exists has come into being through him John uses, the Holy Spirit moves John to use that term, logos, because it was one that was embedded in the Greek culture as well as the Jewish culture because of the Greek language. Greek word simply means the word, just as it's translated in English. But I don't think we fully have the, the con con uh, conception of just how, uh, what a claim he's making. A logos was an was a idea in Greek thought, and then later on during, during um, the period of Hellenization of the Jews and, and Jewish thought, of this unifying principle of life. It, it, uh, it goes uh, back to Aristotle and beyond. Hundreds of years before Christ appeared, the, the Greek philosophers would sit around and debate the, the logos of life, this unifying principle of all life. 
And John, moved by the Holy Spirit, says the logos is not your, your ideas and all, not your vain wrangling about ideas. The logos is the person of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, through whom everything that exists has come into being. <laughs> The divine Logos who created everything out of nothing in six days created man in his image for the purpose of glorifying God. This is the one that John testifies to. This is why you exist. This is why you're here. Because God made you and created you for his own glory. And this is the purpose of John's letter. To testify to that life. John's testimony to the life of Jesus. You see that in verse 2. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John's testimony to Jesus was not merely of a friend. Certainly he was close to Jesus. It was not merely the testimony of an apostle. He, his testimony was of one who was moved by God, moved by the Holy Spirit, to write down the very words of God. In order that all who hear about the sovereign creator who became the sovereign redeemer of the world might have the opportunity to believe unto eternal life. And not merely to have the opportunity to, but to confirm his people because of their relationship to Christ. Um, in our new members class this afternoon, we'll talk about what it takes to join. It's, you know, it, it's not mysterious how you join the church. I mean, if you want to join our church, uh, First and foremost, you have to be saved. You have to be born again. You have to, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be able to articulate that. And, 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 and it can be a childlike understanding of that basic truth that I'm a sinner, I'm hopeless apart from uh, uh, God's intervention in my life, and he offers uh, the this, this sacrificial death of Jesus in my place and I believe that he died for me and the, only the Holy Spirit can reveal that to someone's heart and it's our job as the elders uh, if you want to know what Presbyterian means, that means elders ruled by elders it's just not complicated, it's our job to, to receive people on that credible uh, profession that they really do have a testimony that they put their faith in Jesus and nothing else. They know they're a hopeless sinner, lost apart from his uh, gracious intervention. And that's, that, was, that is what is manifest about Jesus. That's what's revealed about Jesus. 
And John was able to say, we've seen it, and we testify to it. Not only do we have we seen it and we testify to it, we proclaim it. John's testimony is to what Jesus said, was said of Jesus in his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the measure of Christ's life that he speaks of here? His, his, the measure of Christ. What is the measure of Christ's life? The measure of Christ's life is his perfection. His, his active righteousness. His, the fact that from the time he was conscious as an infant to the time he was crucified on the cross, he never in this mortal flesh sinned. He was perfect and undefiled in every way. That was the, the measure of Christ that has been manifest. Oh, that, that bothers us in our human flesh. It bothers people who think about God and want to think to present themselves in the presence of God as something good. To think that they've been a good enough person to be saved. If you ask the majority of people, this is what they'll say. Or do you, do you hope to go to heaven? Most people will say, well, I've been pretty good. Every once in a while, I'll, have, I'll meet an honest person who will say to me, no, I deserve hell. And that's the only way we can truly confess Christ is to understand that we stand Every single person stands deserving of hell. And God in his rich mercy has not left us in that condition because of what Jesus was ordained to do from the foundation of the world to come in the likeness of sinful flesh yet without sin. This is... Um, this is the 100th year anniversary of a, a famous Presbyterian clergyman's writing of a book called Christianity and Liberalism. It is an epic book. If you ever get a hold of a copy, read it, and you'll understand the current situation among the Presbyterian church quite well. And J. Gresham Machen was a lifelong bachelor who committed himself to the gospel. He's from Macon, Georgia, and he went off to Princeton Seminary and became a scholar, a Bible scholar of the first order. Amazing man of God. Devoted his life to it, and, and for his trouble, he was hounded out of the mainline Presbyterian Church. And he actually is the spiritual father of our family of the Presbyterian Church. So if you want to know about the roots, look up J. Gresham Machen. Look him up. It's an important man of God uh, who was used mildly for the gospel. But he was tireless. So because he was single, he could be tirelessly devoted to the gospel. And 
He, uh, the, the seminary um, uh, that he founded uh, was on winter break, and when most people would have wanted to go down to Georgia to enjoy the balmy weather, he decided to go to South Dakota to get on a train from Philadelphia in the dead of winter and go to South Dakota to preach the gospel. And as he went westward and north, it was, it was 20 below zero up there. It's cold up there, like it gets here every once in a while. And he got pneumonia. And he finally died, but before he died, he sent one last telegram to his good friend, John Murray, another professor. And if you've not read John Murray's wonderful book about uh, salvation called Redemption Accomplished and Redemption Applied, I, I encourage you to get that. It's a short, wonderful, biblical treatise on, on the gospel, as good, as good a thing as you would ever read. But he was... Jay Gresham's best friend. And he sent a telegram to him as he was dying. And you would think he might have all kinds of things on his mind. This is what was on his mind as he was dying of pneumonia in South Dakota. He wrote so grateful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without it. There is no hope for anyone without the perfection of Jesus. John, it, we, we think of the first century church as this pristine Christian environment. No. They were being attacked from every side and already this this heresy was developing that, that Jesus was just a spiritual entity. He wasn't real. That just attacked, and that same lie is, is continually perpetrated. The idea of a spiritual savior apart from his body is nothing. John is adamant we've looked upon him we've touched him we, we have seen him we testify to him what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you might have fellowship with us John is adamant when he says we he means I with the other uh, uh, apostles and disciples. We heard him. He's saying, I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. I lived with him as his disciple. He is the only way to eternal life. Holy Spirit moved him to write in his epistle, John 11, Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, yet he shall live. 
there, the, the heresy of uh, that Jesus was just an idea that, could, uh, that he wasn't a, a real person has been with us a long time. Any, any, anything that diminishes his person is something to be avoided. Because it is in him, it is in union with Christ alone that we have the fellowship of life that John speaks of in verse 3 here. Again, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim. We proclaim what we know. It is, you know, it's always dangerous to talk about something, something that you don't know anything about. Have you ever done that? You try to act like you know about something when you don't. John's saying, I'm not, we're not doing that here. We're, we're talking about what we know. We're talking about what true koinonia is, what true fellowship is, what true communion with Christ is, what union with other like-minded believers is. We, we invite, as we, we come to the Lord's table, we, we, uh, we ask you to fence yourself, basically. We, we warn you of the consequences of, of not discerning the Lord's body. When we talk about, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, of, of not discerning his body, it's not discerning who Jesus is in his person and work. If you don't understand that he is Lord, that he has uh, lived, he entered in to this world as, a, as, a, as an infant conceived by the Holy Spirit and his mother Mary, grew up in perfection, obeying God's law perfectly and then offering it on the cross in the place of sinners to reconcile them to God, then you should wait. You should not come to the Lord's table. We ask you to carefully examine if that where your faith is and your trust is. Because fellowship, true fellowship, is with the Father, is with the Son, is with the Holy Spirit. And that is how we do that is revealed fully in the person of Jesus. John and the other apostles saw Jesus in all of his life, in his ministry. They saw him do miracles. They saw him debate the religious rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and make fools of them. They, they, they saw uh, him heal and restore and change lives over and over again. And then they saw him determined to die on the cross, willingly, to fulfill the plan of God for salvation. Now, that, you couldn't make that story up if you tried. That's why it's true. There's nothing, and there's no other truth in this world that matters other than that truth. It's like Peter, 
who was also in that inner circle with John, said in his epistle, 2 Peter, you have we've not followed some cleverly designed myth. This is, the, this is God's plan for you to believe and have fellowship with the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the result is joy. And that's the last thing he says in verse 4. I'm, we're writing, we, meaning I, I'm writing these things that your joy may be complete. Joy is that emotion that is given by God to those who have their faith and trust in Christ who understand they've been delivered from death and hell forever because of his substitutionary death. The only, only thing I can think to compare it is, is has, have you ever been delivered from the brink of death, Andy Grove? <laughs> have you ever had an experience where you had, you had, 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 Someone removed something from your body that was going to kill you, and this the exceeding joy of knowing that you're going to live. Have you ever been miraculously spared from an accident? As one of our young people traveling was recently from an accident that should have killed him. Sometimes God doesn't spare us from those tragedies, but but sometimes he does. Can you imagine the joy of Lazarus when Jesus called him from the tomb? The joy and the sadness at the same time, we're going to have to do this again. But that's, that gives you a little inkling of what that joy should be like. But it's more deeper than that. Because he saved you not only from, from physical ruin and physical death, he saved you from eternal death. If your life is in Christ. This is what Jesus came to do. This is why J. Gresham Machen would write that on his deathbed, dying as a young man of God uh, in a strange hospital in South Dakota in the dead of winter. He could only be, he could only think of the, the active obedience of Christ. And there was no hope without it. And his joy was full. No greater joy than this, John would write in his third epistle. Third John, verse, uh, verse 4, one, chapter 1, verse 4. He had no greater joy as, a, as an apostle than this. To see his children walk in the truth. I have no greater joy as a minister when someone comes to me and professes that they need Jesus. That they are lost. That they are hopelessly lost. And they need forgiveness. The forgiveness of Christ. There's no greater joy in the ministry than for us to hear those professions of faith where we know we know the certainty of what Christ has done. 
complete. Your joy may be complete. The what we're going for by God's grace and what he is drawing us to is complete joy forever in his presence. Perfect, perfect joy. Perfect joy. Where there are no tears, there are no regrets. Because Jesus has accomplished his will in saving people for himself. This is why John writes. And this is what we will go through in the coming weeks, Jay and I. So let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here who's yet to know the joy of sins forgiven, the joy of the substitutionary death of Christ in their place, <coughs> Father, I pray that even now you would change their heart to quit trusting in self and self-righteousness, to trust in the perfect active obedience of Jesus in their place, given in their place on the cross. <coughs> he died that we might live forever. We pray for this now in Jesus' name.